How's it going, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods. In this episode of the show, I'm super excited to introduce you to my good friend, Dr. Paul Graywall. If his name sounds familiar to you, it's because it adorns the cover of my book, Genius Foods. Dr. Paul served as my co-author in the book, and for about eight months in 2016, as we underwent the principal writing process, we were basically a married couple. We'd brainstorm, write, philosophize, and even argue at times, all for the same of writing the best possible book we could on health and nutrition. Dr. Paul is a board-certified internal medicine physician, one of the smartest guys I know, and an expert in metabolic health, weight loss, and exercise physiology. He's got a very moving personal story that's motivated his work at the front lines of medicine, and I can't wait for you to hear it. So in this hour and 15-minute interview, you're going to learn a lot, including labs that you can use to assess how your metabolic engine is running, why yo-yo dieting and counting calories is only setting you up for failure in the modern food environment, what Dr. Graywall thinks of cholesterol-lowering drugs called statins, which are a $25 billion a year business, the number one thing that you can do in the gym for better bone mineral density, and so much more. This is easily one of my favorite episodes that I've taped so far for The Genius Life, so I do hope that you listen all the way through to the end, and if you enjoy it, it would mean the world to me if you'd consider sharing it on social media to help spread the word. But before we get to the show, do you want to sleep a little bit better? If you're one of the 30% of the general population that complain of insomnia, then I'm assuming your answer is yes. There's a handful of studies that talk about the benefits of supplemental glycine on sleep quality. One 2006 study published in the journal Sleep and Biological Rhythms found that three grams of glycine before bed improved symptoms of fatigue and promoted liveliness and peppiness and clear-headedness the next day. My favorite source of glycine is bone broth. And when it comes to bone broth, a brand that I've tried recently that I really enjoy is Bonafide Provisions. What I like about their bone broth is that it is perishable and frozen and it's 100% broth. It's not like some of these cheaper brands that mixes their bone broth with uh, stock. You'll notice that if you compare a bag of bone broth to a can of soup or stock, that bone broth has a significantly higher amount of protein. This is beneficial in and of itself because protein is a pretty important uh, macronutrient, but the type of protein specifically that's found in bone broth is collagen, and collagen is rich in glycine. So check out Bonafide Provisions at bonafideprovisions.com and use code GENIUSBROTH to save 20% off of your first order. That's a lot of cheddar. Again, that's bonafideprovisions.com, code GENIUSBROTH for 20% off. It's very tasty, it's perishable, and it's full of glycine, baby. So drink a cup before you go to sleep and let me know uh, if that improves your sleep quality in any way. I'm genuinely curious to know. All right, guys. Now, before we get to the show with Dr. Paul, I'd really appreciate if you would consider supporting the show yourself by leaving a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this show. It's really easy to do. Just go to the show's page on iTunes or in the podcast app on your iPhone and leave that five-star rating if you think the show is deserving of that. And a few words of endorsement. That's going to help add social proof and bring new listeners to the show, which is only going to help me get better and better and better guests. The other way that you can support the show is by joining my newsletter at maxlugavere.com, where every week or so, I'm going to send you an email with at least one powerful way to improve your life. In fact, immediately upon signing up, you're going to get a list of the 12 supplements that you can use to boost your brain function, just as a token of appreciation. I look forward to uh, staying in touch with you there. And yeah, that's that. So now, without further ado, please give a warm welcome in your head to uh, Dr. Paul, co-author of the book Genius Foods, board-certified internal medicine physician and expert in weight loss, metabolic health, and I would say life in general. Yeah. All right. 
Here we go. Welcome to the Genius Foods reunion show. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sitting here with Dr. Paul Graywall, MD, who's one of my closest friends. And if you've read the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods, you'll notice that Paul's name is on the cover. Why is that? Well, because Paul is my co-author in the book. So thanks for being here on The Genius Life, Dr. Graywall. It is my absolute pleasure. Can I call you Paul? You can call me, you can call me whatever you want. <laughs> Paul works. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm just getting flashbacks to us uh, chilling in, uh, in my studio doing kettlebell swings and push-ups while one of us was clanking away on the keyboard. Oh, man. Such good times. Such good times. What what are some of the key like prompt pr- more prominent memories that you have from that process? I remember eating lots of dark chocolate with you. We much we we sh- we we, sh- we broke chocolate together. <laughs> we broke chocolate together. We ate lots of Greek food we from ate, from the truck, the Greek parks, truck, the Greek yes. truck that parks by your house. Um, yeah, it's the only place on the Upper East Side that's like lunch for less than twenty dollars. It's great. Kettlebell swings. Lots of kettlebell swings. Just getting that blood flow going so we can get the creative juices going. Yeah. Not to be underestimated. That was a holdover from medical school. We used to do push-ups and dips in between the library chairs while we were studying for our uh, exams. Man. Well, so, um, you know, one of the reasons why I think working with you on the book was such a treat was that you know more than I would say most people that I've encountered about uh, metabolic health, body composition, strength training, and weight loss. But these are not things typically taught in medical school. How did you come to becoming so well-versed in, uh, in those topics? Yeah, so um, basically, I mean, we can go on to the kind of scientific bent and we can go on to the emotional side of things, but I think emotion drives our thirst for knowledge a lot of the time. So for me, it was uh, growing up with um, childhood obesity. So I was, uh, you know, my father is, was like a built like a brick house. He was a wrestler in India. He was, you know, just running around and living off the land. And my mother was, uh, you know, from Cyprus, they were kind of third world and they never had enough to eat. So when they came to the U S they kind of made us focus on education and, um, didn't realize the importance of, uh, a, the, the appropriate amount of uh, uh, physical activity, although they did try to kind of stimulate that. But as you know, when your uh, food environment is poisoned and you've got hyperinsulinemia, um, your energy levels drop because your blood sugar is going up and down. And, um, you know, I was kind of on the leading edge of that problem um, in the 80s. Um, and now it's, actually, it's reached epidemic proportions. And, um, you know, childhood obesity is running rampant. You have like a very high percentage of kids with um, metabolic disease. They've got fatty livers and they're, you know, 12, 13 years old. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a big problem now. And I, I attribute it to a kind of poisoned food environment rather than a lack of willpower because I'm the same person I was. But now I have the kind of... Um, I'm armed with more knowledge now, so I can kind of uh, find my way around it. But yeah, so I um, had lost weight. I, I was, I think, I topped out around 275, 280 pounds. Um, wow! By the time I was uh, 17 years old, so you were you were very heavy. Yeah, and and you know what? Like I was trying. I mean, I showed up to uh, lacrosse practice every day. We, I think the coach felt sorry for me. He didn't cut me from the team, but I didn't play a single minute of uh, of playtime, and I was just kind of 
just sweating my way through it and could barely move. It was, it was really not a way to go through life. And I was, I mean, that scared me. And then I got to college and I said, you know, this is going to be the rest of my life. I'm going to be a shut in and, you know, socially, you know, um, you live this kind of life is being that overweight. I think there's a few people that can kind of, um, by sheer, sheer kind of strength of their, um, of their personality, they can ignore it and, um, you know, lead a, a fulfilling existence. But I think myself and I think the vast majority of people who are significantly overweight, um, it's, uh, it's like this slow form of torture. It's like you're living under a cloud, like big parts of life are not open to you, right? Mm. Whether it's um, in dating or, um, you know, and I didn't really even notice this until I started to lose the weight, right? So I didn't have a ton of knowledge, but I just started walking and running and I did a very, very severe calorie restriction. So I just wrote down, I have a notebook with everything I ate for almost two years and I was eating about 1,000 to 1,200 calories a day, which is essentially you know, starvation level calories, but the weight came off. Um, and as the weight came down, it was just like a linear increase in the number of people that say hi to you, the number of people that smile at you. It's just a complete, it's as if like this entire world of like being, uh, socially, uh, present is, is opened up to you. And so what that taught me, I mean, a, you can kind of, you can actually have a little bit, some dark thoughts there, which is like, nobody actually, everybody's completely superficial, (laughs) or you can just say, this is just human nature. And we have kind of, um, built in measures of, of judging one another based on how healthy we appear. And, um, and so I wasn't healthy. And actually at the end of that process, I got down to what, I 185 pounds or something like that. And I was, I was pretty much what we would call skinny fat at that point, even though I was trying to lift a little bit and I had the benefit of being very young and um, probably some hormonal uh, advantages of having testosterone. I mean, I was, I was, I was kind of sickly and it was not sustainable. So um, you can keep it up as long, and, and as we know now, I mean, the evidence is just continuing to come out that the metabol- your metabolism slows down, and if you have a very adaptable metabolism, your your body could be burning 20 to 40% fewer calories than expected while you're in a weight loss state. So the only way to maintain weight loss under that paradigm of eating less is to basically continually undereat forever. Hmm. Right. And so the minute that you're, you're the, and I used to say to myself, like the cost of having a normal body, the price is eternal vigilance. You can never slip up. Hmm. Right. Because the weight will just come back and misery really. and, and misery. Yeah. And, um, uh, and fear. And so, you know, but that said, when this, when I got into medical school and I started studying again and, you know, the stress levels were there and I couldn't literally count everything I was eating and my mental focus wavered. I regained 70 pounds like within, within a year easily. Wow. Like it was nothing. Wow. And then I was back at square one and then I tried to do the calorie counting again and it just didn't work. Hmm. Whether it was because my body had been, you know, had adapted to it and my, you know, I couldn't get the calories low enough or whether it was like a psychological thing. I can't, 
I can't say. Um, so I was really, um, I was floundering for a little while. And then in um, the fourth year of medical school, I, and uh, I'm going to plug here, but, um, and I don't recommend this for all of my patients all the time, but I got very lucky in that, you know, I was right in that zone of being 20, you know, 25, 26 years old. And uh, I stumbled into my good friends, uh, now good friends, uh, CrossFit gym in Hoboken, New Jersey. <laughs> and um, I went in, I saw them working out. And I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> um, and they were like, come work out. And so I, uh, uh, I did one workout and I was so intimidated that I didn't go back for four months. <laughs> so that stalled me out. But um, when I finally went back and started doing it, I was like, okay, this, this actually feels good. And then I was introduced to a kind of paleo sort of diet, which is effectively a, low car a version of a low carbohydrate, um, unprocessed diet. And it just worked like a silver bullet the way that calorie counting never did, right? So I didn't feel hungry. My energy levels were good. The weight came off um, almost effortlessly. Um, and, you know, so when people come to my practice and, uh, you know, are saying, what, what should I do to get back on health, you know, on the healthy track? I'm like, well, you can either, you know, pay me a lot of money to guide you through this very complex um, process and planning process, or you could just eat paleo and go to CrossFit. <laughs> um, of course, like, again, I think, uh, you know, CrossFit is a good gateway drug into weightlifting, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, um, as being one of the best mechanisms for assuring you have a healthy metabolism, um, good glucose to put disposal, um, and one of the best ways to age in a healthy way. So um, I, I give it a lot of props for that. And then having a community aspect is important as well and, and having some extra motivation there. But, um, but yeah, so I was doing this while I was in medical school. And in medical school, they're saying, I mean, complete opposite advice, right? <laughs> Which is... Um, you should eat six to 11 servings of grains and, uh, you know, and this eat less exercise more thing is just so it's so ineffective and so American. It just puts all of the blame on, um, the willpower of the person. And I hear, I mean, doctors would say it all the time. Like this patient is non-compliant there. Um, you know, they would just get these attitudes that the patients are at fault. And it's one, I think obesity is one of the few, kind of forms of discrimination that is still culturally and socially acceptable. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and even, even overweight, I mean, at least with, with, with racism, for example, right. Other people of your race, you're not going to necessarily discriminate against them. Although that, that's not a hundred percent true. Um, but with, with, um, being overweight, um, fat people, think other fat people, they rate other fat people as being less disciplined, as being um, less put together, as not, um, you know, not having positive personality characteristics. Um, and that goes to the great guilt and shame that goes along with being a fat person yourself, I think. Um, and that beating, that cycle of beating yourself up, it needs to stop somehow. Mm -hmm. um, and I think doctors need to um, take the lead on that, right? Like we don't, we're not encouraging like, you know, I, I'm not so I, I don't fit in that kind of, you know, um, happy at any size sort of paradigm, because I think that um, you should always be working towards um, improving your metabolic health. Um, but at the same time, the oh, this person, of course, they can't stick to a diet because, you know, the hormonal mechanism, like your body just shuts down when you start to diet. 
right? Every ounce, every cell in your body is fighting that process. Your brain will tell your nerves not to fire as often so that your body moves less so that you can make up for that caloric um, deficit, right? So you, 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 you start with a 500 calorie deficit once you take out the, the drop in testosterone, the drop in thyroid um, hormone, and the neural adaptation where you're just moving less, you're neat, you're non-exercise activity thermogenesis. You can erase that deficit in a matter of a few weeks mm. and then you're back at square one. So you cut another 500 calories from your diet and that cycle repeats itself and eventually you just get to the point now your cortisol is going up as well and so now you have chronically elevated cortisol your blood sugar is up um and you're losing muscle at a frightening pace right so when you um when you lose weight without doing a resistance training you'll lose about uh 70 percent fat let's say for 10 pounds you lose seven pounds of fat and three pounds of lean mass right fine when you regain the weight, you gain 90% fat, you'll gain nine pounds of fat and one pound of lean mass. Wow. So every time you're doing a little yo-yo diet up and down 10 pounds, you're losing muscle on the way down and you're not regaining it on the way up. Wow. So it's changing your body composition Big for, time. The, for the worse. Absolutely. Wow. Um, so, so what were you, so as you were in medical school hearing about, you know, the sort of calories in calories out model, eat less, exercise more. I mean, what were you thinking having had the, um, the, the personal experience that you had as an undergraduate where you basically followed exactly that advice, which is sort of like the common wisdom that, that seems to be perpetuated about how to effectively lose weight. Yeah, and I mean, I see this on, Inst- I, maybe I'm spending a little too, time, too much time on Instagram, but I see this all the time in the Instagram fitness world where it's like, and in fitness, like evidence-based fitness community in mm-hmm. general, where they say a calorie deficit is what uh, creates weight loss. Right. And... That's true, like, we have to differentiate between that as a math term. Like, from a mathematics perspective, great. Of course you are, because right. if you're losing mass, then you're, by definition, in a calorie deficit of some right. sort. Right. But it tells us nothing about what's on either side of the equation. Right. And it doesn't, it's not um, behaviorally, it's not, it's not useful behavioral information, right? Yeah. So, calorie deficit. Sure. So what that means to somebody who's reading it or watching it um, is that, okay, how do I create a calorie deficit? It's to eat less. Okay. Which we just discussed. Like you create adaptations almost within three days, your metabolism will slow by 17% for many people. Mm. Um, And so that becomes functionally not useful. Um, And then when I started to, you know, when I kind of dove in and found the kind of insulin hypothesis, which I think um, is really critical, I think hyperinsulinemia, and again, even in terms of diseases like diabetes, right, we consider it, we were taught in medical school that it's a disease of blood sugar um, dysregulation, right, which on some level it is, but the actual disease is hyperinsulinemia. Mm. So elevated insulin levels, crashing your blood sugar, making you hungry, making you overeat, um, getting a overly robust response to the same amount of carbohydrates. Um, and it just puts you in this massive anabolic state all the time. And dropping insulin levels is the key to weight loss, is the key to reversing diabetes. Now, I think... Um, there's a lot of uh, back and forth between low carb, low fat, low calorie. Ultimately, the way that you square the circle with that is that whatever diet you're going to be on should be a low insulin diet. So if you can drive your calories sufficiently low, your insulin levels will drop. I just find that um, 
the one intervention behaviorally that results in higher satiety and um, feelings of fullness and that results in spontaneously lower calorie intake is a lower carbohydrate diet. And I think that's usually, if, and if you haven't um, tried it, it's almost always worth trying for a few weeks or a, couple, or a month, um, especially if you've tried and failed with other methods of, of weight loss. Um, and then when I got to residency, it, didn't even, it, it got even worse because now I see that the diabetes educators, I'd be diagnosing somebody with diabetes, and the first thing they would give them is, okay, this is what um, a potato roll with 50 grams of carbohydrates, and here's how much insulin you give for it. If we understand that the disease is elevated insulin levels, why are we treating the disease with insulin? Yeah. It, may, it literally makes the disease worse. Right. End of story. Right. And so I started, you know, when I was in residency, I would kind of surreptitiously, um, I printed out one page and I would give it to my patients and I'd say, the diabetes educators and the nurses and some of the other doctors are going to say, you need to eat six to 11 servings of grains and take these medications. I was like, you can do that. I was like, you can also just eat what's on this page and not eat what's at the bottom of the page. And that, that page was, and again, if I'm, if I'm saying it to, to a person in one or two sentences, it's meat, chicken, fish, eggs, nuts, and non-starchy vegetables. You can have as much as that, of that as you want. Yeah. And you avoid processed foods. So starchy, sugar, um, you know, added fats, and like added oils, like vegetable oils, et cetera. And, um, and it literally, it's, it cures diabetes. I would say that in 80 to 90% of type two diabetes is curable with really simple interventions. And then I would also say that, oh, patients are not going to be able to comply with this. It's too, I mean, I've, I literally have had 80, 80, I remember, you know, 82, 85 year old woman who's living by herself is taking three or four medications and, you know, we had her off of all of them within three months. She had had diabetes for 10 or 15 years. Wow. And she, you know, I mean, I think the danger actually is curing it too quickly because if you're taking insulin and all of a sudden your blood sugars are going down because your metabolism is improving, like you could, you could overdose yourself with insulin. So that needs to be done a little more carefully, but. That's interesting. Are, is it ever too late? Are you ever t too old to adopt uh, or too advanced to adopt a, a low carb diet for the first time? Um, I've, well, I think if you're, if you're, if you still have your wits about you, it's, it's easy enough to do. Um, you know, obviously once you get to a certain age and you have things like dementia and some behavioral issues, then, then it's going to be less, less easy to implement. Um, right. cost is an issue, right? So, um, low carb foods have, are general, again, we're not just saying this is not like low carb Atkins. We're saying this is a whole foods unprocessed diet. So, right. Right. um, it tends, but again, I was in my clinic in Queens, I was having good good results and it was a very I mean this was basically a Medicaid um, sort of um, low-income population and I mean we were reversing diabetes left and right so I was kind of a zealot at that point because I'm like it worked like a magic bullet for me I'm curing my patients it's amazing um, my I think my, my stance has moderated since then a little bit mm -hmm. because I think once you fix that metabolic disease um, which is um, uh, the insulin resistance, then, okay, now you're insulin sensitive. Where do you go from there? Yeah. Right? What happens if you plateau? Um, and, and then I think you can strategically start as we, you know, we talked about in the book, we can start to strategically reintroduce carbs. And in fact, in a metabolically healthy person, I mean, high carb diets are perfectly, uh, perfectly doable. And you could argue that there's a performance benefit over, over fat as a, as an excess, as kind of like a main calorie source, because it can be used to refill my muscle glycogen and right. fuel a higher intensity workouts. 
Um, so you have to kind of have a little bit of a, a moderate stance. I, I feel like my, my views have moderated a little bit over time. Um, but yeah, so that, that brings us to now, I guess. So, um, yeah, what I, what I think I'm, I'm hearing from you is that there's really no such thing as a one size fits all diet that depending on your goals, depending on your metabolic health, um, diet is something that really, uh, the ideal diet is something that, that really varies from person to person and to figure out what that is for you, the listener, it's probably going to take a little bit of, uh, self-experimentation, following up with your healthcare provider, getting labs to see where you stand on the metabolic health spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, but at the same time, you kind of have to pick something and stick with it to see what effect it has. Um, again, like if you're going to your doctor, if you have elevated, I mean, these are the no brainer things. They're very cheap to test. Um, and they can give you a good indicator of whether it might be, especially if, if you've been struggling, um, of whether you might be a good candidate for doing a, an intervention like this. Um, if your A1C is, you know, mid fives or higher, um, that's your three month. It's basically a three month average blood sugar. If your triglycerides are high, if your HDL is low, those are kind of the, you know, the key indicators of metabolic syndrome. Um, and that that will respond to a lower kind of uh, uh, low carb diet yeah. for the most part. What else do you look at in your labs? Because I know you do you do oh, pretty tons, thorough tons of stuff. testing. Yeah, so um, if you're looking a little bit deeper into like your cholesterol numbers, like we're learning, and again, I'm going to kind of um, moderate my stance on this, but I think that we grossly overtreat quote unquote high cholesterol. Um, but we do know that your LDL, um, so the quote unquote bad cholesterol. Um, isn't necessarily bad in and of itself, but there are certain profiles which are generally related to um, metabolic disease in the liver. So I, I'm kind of, my theory is again that the, the liver is a, of critical importance in in heart disease and metabolic disease and diabetes, right? So the liver is kind of the master metabolic. It's the engine. It kind of is the master metabolic regulator, and it's basically um, processing food that's coming in. It's creating all of these proteins. It's packaging them up. Uh, and um, recycling everything. It's, it's, re it's the master detoxifier. It's so evolutionarily conserved. Like our evolution has been perfecting this for you know, a billion years um, and our livers are really, really good at detoxifying, um, but only if they're not clogged up, right? And what clogs them up is, you know, if you dump fructose into the duodenum, um, you know, it's going to get, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 grams of, of fructose going, getting dumped into the liver creates an instant fatty liver. And that liver can't now can't recycle your cholesterol particles. Um, now it can't, it's packaging up those, that fructose into triglycerides. Um, and it really just overloads the system. And I think that is a underappreciated, um, mechanism in heart disease. How um, do we, how do we get a sense of how our livers are, are doing? Yeah. So, um, AST and ALT are the liver enzymes. They're usually checked on the comprehensive metabolic panel that um, most doctors will run. Um, again, the uh, the way that we determine the um, normal, what is normal on the labs, um, is based on a sample of the population. And that sample of the population has been getting fatter and fatter um, over the years. And so a normal ALT, which is one of the enzymes, um, was in the you know, under 20 or under 25, 30 or 40 years ago, now it's up to 40, wow. right? So I would say if you're over 30 with your ALT, that's a sign that your, your liver is under some duress, mm. um, especially if it's consistently over. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, other markers. So we've, you've heard of uh, LDL cholesterol. So, you know, a lot of kind of doctors or forward thinking doctors are now using LDL particle numbers. So looking at the number of 
cholesterol particles in the blood. And, you know, we talk about this briefly in the book, and I I know we should probably expand on that at some point. Um, But uh, the LDL particles going up is actually because they're trying to get back to the liver um, after they've dumped their cholesterol and triglycerides to your cells. They want to go back to the liver to get recycled. And the liver's too busy processing all the crap that we're putting in ourselves. And uh, they get bounced back into the circulation. They get oxidized and then stick in your blood vessel walls. So um, LDL particle number going up is an, actually an early sign of impending metabolic disease, even potentially before your A1C goes up or before your triglycerides go up significantly. So that's another leading indicator. Um, And then, you know, again, your sex hormones being robust is important. Although I will say that I have men in their, you know, late 30s, 40s, and 50s who come in with low testosterone. And when we fix their liver metabolic issues, um, their testosterone bounces up doubles and triples. Um, and so we don't, you know, I think a lot of doctors out there would say, okay, let's put you on, on testosterone replacement. But I say, let's, okay, no, let's, let's get you on a strength training program and, um, and get a little of that liver fat down. And, uh, and these things might self-correct. So hypothetically, looking at LDLP, which is the LDL particle number, we would expect that to to go down when a person adopts sort of a lower carb diet, cuts out the packaged processed foods that are potentially overloading overloading the liver. Yeah, so I think um, generally that's what I see. the 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 data isn't fully there, and I think there are a po- there is a lot of heterogeneity. So I think. Um, people can respond differently. I think there's a small percentage of the population. I've, and I've seen people come to me that are on like these ketogenic sort of diets, um, which is, I, I actually don't recommend most of the time a traditional ketogenic diet because it's actually high in added fats. Um, a lot of people putting a lot of coconut oil, a lot of butter, a lot of, um, you know, and which is not necessarily toxic. But again, when you're having that without adequate fiber, when it's not contained within whole foods, um, I think I have seen it um, cause some metabolic issues. So if some people have a paradoxic response, um, and so their LDLP does not go down, it can go up. And sometimes what we'll do is, again, take out added oils, um, increase fiber intake, swap out um, saturated fat for monounsaturated fat like olive oil yeah um and that can sometimes moderate it but um i think we're still in the in the kind of early stages of understanding how to manipulate it yeah um but yeah so i think um i think one of the big things also i think cortisol is really under um recognized as a cause of uh blood sugar and uh weight loss problems, right? So especially New York, there's a lot of stressed out people that have no idea how stressed they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and they wake up and their blood sugar is in the 90s, yet they're on a low carb diet, right? And actually, if you're on a sustained low carb diet and and you're stressed out, um, that can paradoxically cause blood sugar issues um, and then cause you to retain fat and basically lose muscle. And I see even people who are not overweight, right? The same way that we um, demonize people as uh, being overweight and because that's a marker of metabolic disease, yeah. I mean, you know, 20, 25% of people who are overweight have no metabolic disease. They, mm. they just, I mean, what's the healthy thing to do with extra calories is store them as subcutaneous fat. Right. It's only when those fat stores get tapped out and they're saying like, even the adipocytes, those fat cells are saying we can't take any more <laughs> calories in. That's when the insulin resistance and the, and the inflammation occurs. Right. So right. if you could just get fatter and fatter and fatter, that actually could 
theoretically be a healthy way of disposing of those ex excess calories. Of course, it's going to cause joint problems down the line, strain on the heart, etc. But, um, you know, 20 to 25% of people who are normal weight are metabolically sick. Wow. They're skinny fat. Yeah. Wow. So, so chronic stress could then be considered sort of a, a diet independent way of, uh, shifting your body weight, um, from, you know, muscle, you know, and lean mass to excess fat storage, uh, chronically elevated blood sugar. It's one of the reasons, I guess, why chronic stress is such a, such a killer. Yeah. And I think we exacerbate it. We go to a lot of, you know, uh, again, I'm in, I'm in Manhattan, so it's a, a certain breed of, of person here that tends to be a little they, a bit more type A, a bit more go-getter. Um, but, you know, they come to me doing five days a week of high intensity interval classes and uh, they're not getting the body composition goals and they need to slow down, um, get on a, you know, we can transition to talking about lifting because, you know, I love talking about that. <laughs> yeah. um, but getting on a progressive overload training regimen is going to you know is going to be critically important it becomes a good way of uh um measuring whether you're where you're making progress right because it's hard to get stronger and not have your other processes working well yeah yeah so let's talk about lifting what is your current workout regimen like are you still are you still obsessed with crossfit or is it has it evolved or uh, it's evolved so i'll do a kind of like a crossfit style workout once in a while but the bulk of my training is um is just heavy compound movements. So, and it and you have to kind of vary them depending on what your goal is, right? So, if you're if you are trying to lose weight, um, there's an argument that you should exercise less but just more intensely. And so, you go with a higher intensity, lower volume. So, lifting just three or four days a week um, and just sticking with your heavy movements. Um, and again, most good uh, kind of training regimens are going to hit your muscle groups twice a week or so. Um, and you're going to kind of have a pushing, you know, horizontal push and pull. So bench press row, uh, an overhead press, uh, an overhead pull. So like a lat pull down or a pull up or a chin up. Um, and then some version of squatting, deadlifting, lunging, um, and putting those on a kind of twice a week sort of cycle. And that's a good baseline, but really what you want to make sure you're doing is getting progressive overload. And what that means is that you're recording what you're doing and, um, and session over session, you're either increasing the weight on the bar, the number of sets you're doing, the number of reps you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And then reevaluate um, every, you know, six to 12 weeks and kind of maybe take out an exercise, add one in. Um, and you, if you do that three days a week, then whatever you, else you enjoy doing, you can layer that on top. But the foundation really needs to be like strength is the foundation for all other fitness, right? A stronger muscle, a larger muscle has more endurance, right? So, people who are runners um and oh we don't even get me started on running <laughs> i was just gonna ask you where cardio and aerobic exercise fits into your into your uh routine yeah so i think as much low slow movement as possible is good so tons of walking um and then i like to do my uh twice a week frolic in central park so you know i'll jog i'll sprint i'll walk i'll take in the sights i'll enjoy it but the the point is that it's not like with this 45 minute grind with a grimace on your face so you're never on a treadmill well i mean again unless i'm doing sprints got it yeah and again i'll do kind of a one or two days of intervals and again when you're doing when you if you're designing your interval training regimens um shorter 
with longer rests, I, I think are going to end up with better kind of um, progressive results than, because if you can do something for 45 seconds and then you can do it again a minute later, it's probably not high intensity enough, Yeah. right? Like after a good 15 to 30 second sprint, you should need, feel like you need to take two to three or four minutes to recover from that. Yeah. Otherwise, just bump up the intensity level. Now, obviously, before beginning a new fitness program, you know, the disclaimer, you have to go and check with your, you know, your doctor, make sure that you're healthy enough to do it. But just generally speaking, are these kind of like the recommendations that you would make for all ages, all stages? I mean, is there anybody out there who's not going to benefit from from strength training? I think it's important. Um, there's a lot of, if you're super self-motivated and you don't have any resources around you, you know, there's a lot of good um, lifting technique resources online and they're free. Um, you know, YouTube has a lot like Alan Thrall's YouTube channel. He does some really great tutorials on um on lifting technique, um, video yourself um, so that you can observe kind of uh, keeping your spine stability, which is critical. Um, even if it's going to make you look like a weirdo in the gym? Even if it's going to make you look like, well, <laughs> we're going to look like that regardless of what we do, Max. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, and so that's the you kind of can get self-motivated or if you know a good personal, I mean, I always recommend, if, so, if a patient comes to me and I don't, and I'm not confident about, their form, I force them to work with a, with a strength coach. So we are lucky. We have, um, Dennis Hoop, who's a fantastic, um, German import that we, uh, <laughs> that actually is a secret sauce behind a lot of the results for my patients. And it's just, you know, good old fashioned movement instruction and drilling it. And, um, and you should be, you know, you should get somebody who's, unfortunately, there's not a lot of good kind of qualifying bodies, um, in terms of how to teach, um, correct weightlifting form. Um, but, uh, you kind of will have to, but it's safer than you would think. Right. So, I mean, if you compare the, the, the injury rates from, from weightlifting to other sports, I mean, they're really not, um, any, any worse. Wow. Um, and in fact, I would say, I mean, gosh, I mean, I th here, here's a fun thing we did when we were writing genius foods, we would go to central park and look at people, um, with insufficient muscle mass trying to run. And it's a complete disaster. Um, you know, if you, if you lack the ability, if you can't do squats and deadlifts and lunges and you can't support your own body weight, if you're running, you're putting multiple, um, multiples of your body weight in every strike, right? And so you need a strong foundation in, from which to do that. And what happens is um, we have this like jogging culture. Like jogging is not even a, a thing, right? I mean, we just invented it. Um, there's running and there's walking. I mean, I think I don't think anybody jogged until like 40 years ago when, when Nike invented the, the shoes that had yeah. a cushioned heel. And so once you start the heel striking disasters, I mean, you're basically taking the Achilles, which is this in, one of the strongest tendons in the mammalian kingdom, um, which is meant for shock absorption, and you're taking it out of the equation, right? So you end up slamming your heel into the ground, which, which just drives the force right into your knee. Um, without the shock absorbing of the, of the Achilles. Um, and I think it's, I mean, it's made a lot of orthopedic surgeons very rich, right? <laughs> so people with, you know, their feet don't stay in alignment. They, their arches kind of collapse in. They get valgus or varus deformities. So they either get bow-legged or knock-kneed. Mm. Um, and if you're jogging like that, you're basically just propelling yourself with your the elasticity of your connective tissue rather than 
than any actual musculature, right? Yikes. And then you end up with that, ki- and when you reinforce a kyphotic posture, right? So we're sitting at a desk all day, I mean, kyphosis meaning kind of like a rounding of the back, like a hunchback, um, and in, in its most extreme version. Um, we're reinforcing that sitting at a desk all day, hunched over, and then we go to Central Park and we're jogging, and the stable confirmation is in that same position. So we're just hunched over while we're jogging. I mean, it's just it's just a biomechanical disaster right and and also you know extra resistance training weightlifting one of the best things that you can do to build bone mineral density absolutely which is super critical i mean at any age but especially as you as you get older yeah and you really um you want to build as much bone mineral density by the age of 30 as possible because it's going to kind of be a downhill slide from there um so weightlifting and also vibration so ten that's uh so tennis and Jumping kind of movements are what stimulates the uh, your bones from or prevents them from uh, demineralizing mm. um, because they're getting a vibration stimulus that they need to stay there. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So weightlifting is great, but um, some form of uh, kind of impact is is again. It's hard to recommend this as a blanket recommendation for everybody because people are coming from very different um, places of health, but. Um, yeah, I think that's also pretty important as well. So let's go back to you for a second. So you, in as an undergraduate, you were obese, you were yo-yo dieting, you know, cutting your calories, eating less. The weight slammed back on once you got into medical school, um, and the rigors associated with the you know the schedule of medical school and the stress and all that stuff. Where is your metabolism right now? I mean, do you do you find you're obviously you've lost the weight. You're in amazing shape. Do you find that you have to focus a lot on the kinds of foods that you're eating? Have you been able to, to effectively fix your metabolism? Um, that's actually a really good question. So I think, again, if we're, if we're just talking about the in and out math, um, it's different than the emotional side of things, right? So emotionally, and again, like it's, uh, I, think, um, I think traditionally it's been associated with females to have kind of uh, obsession about the your the way your body looks right it was uh, up until re- but i think now it's being more and more accepted that men have some of the same kind of body image issues that um that females do um and ultimately for me honestly i'm still a fat kid in my head right like and i don't know that i'm going to ever completely overcome that um and so there's i'm always working on my my emotional relationship with food um you know, whenever things get stressful or emotionally uh, difficult, like it's still there. It's still in the back of my head. I crave, you know, certain foods if I'm, you know, I mean, there was a period last year when I would, you know, um, if I would go out and have a couple of drinks and I'm kind of being very strict with my diet, I would binge on a pint of Ben and Jerry's and I'm a 35, 36 year old man, doctor telling people how to eat healthy. And I'm still making these, these mistakes. And I think, Another issue with the kind of social media is that you don't see that in the people who are kind of uh, being the fitness kind of uh, influencers is that it's always these perfect, um, you know, manicured meals that are like well-balanced macros. Um, But but the reality is like the the the. the path is not a straight line. It's it's up and down, and, and, and it always will be. And I think you need to make a little bit of peace with that. Um, I certainly have have had to. And you know, for me now, I mean, I'm still to this day. I mean, this process, this journey started for me almost you know 19 years ago, 
And I've been able to sublimate it a little bit because I help others, you know, through this uh, path. Um, But that's almost a way of enabling my own kind of issues because I still get to think about food and fitness all day, except now I get, you know, I'm, uh, it's my profession. So (laughs) there's an excuse, but a lot of people are obsessed with their food and their fitness and it's not their profession and it still takes up 90% of their mental energy. Um, and so I don't have all the answers for that. I will say that if I weren't, and I'm still trying to make changes to my body composition, right? So, um, I think you have to differentiate between when you're in a steady state, if you're trying to lose body fat, if you're trying to lose weight and those things are very different things, right? So, um, when you're in a, if you're trying to actively change your body composition, you need to keep your protein higher than you otherwise might. Um, and it's a lot more than you might think, right? Like even for myself, when I, if I don't track for several months, I forget what 150 or 200 grams of protein looks like. And, and then it's subconsciously sabotaging me because I'm, I think I'm hungry, but I'm actually just not having enough protein. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, and similarly, I have some uh, females, especially that I, I force them to eat more and their body composition starts to change for the better, you know, because if you and m- m- many females and, and again, some men as well, um, they do that exactly what we talked about, which is, again, they hear this advice that you need to create a calorie deficit and they cut 500 and then they cut another 500 and now they're down to 1200 or 900 calories a day. I had a wow. patient who was on eating 900 calories a day, hyper disciplined, you know, so that I don't think they were under reporting and, um, and they were just completely, they were skinny fat. They weren't, they were on the border of being overweight, but not really. Um, and they're just, you, they can't get the obsession about being skinnier out of their head. And I say, okay, listen, if you put on 10 pounds of muscle, your, bo- your clothes will fit better, your, your, your waist will be smaller, and you'll, you know, you'll look better. And, and it took a year of drilling that before um, this patient that I have in mind um, started to hit their, you know, actively, proactively adding high protein, high fiber foods. And I'm saying, you have to eat this much. Instead of you, you can only eat this much, I say you have to eat this much. And then the body just started, starts to change because the cortisol levels drop. You know, the body is now in a kind of good anabolic balance. Um, so yeah, so in terms of, of my routine, I, I could probably, um, I would do low carb-ish and then um, have carbs post-workout if I was in a maintenance phase. But um, I find it useful to track things um, when I'm trying to lose weight or, or lose body fat. But again, I have, a very, I, I have a very adaptive metabolism. And so, you know, I could eat, I could, I could eat 3,000 calories a day and not lose weight. And I could eat 1,900 calories and not lose weight, right? It's just my body will, I have to drive even lower than that to, to lose body fat. And so you can, if you're having trouble, it's because you have to take into account that your, your metabolism might be very adaptable. So then when, you, when you're scrolling on Instagram and you see all of these, uh, you know, probably well, you know, well-intentioned influencers out there perpetuating the advice that it's really all about counting calories and that so long as you're coming in at under your maintenance calories, you can eat a Cinnabon. Um, I mean, what's going through your head? Uh, I think it's just, well, again, it's... It's well-intentioned and there's a survivorship bias, right? So the same way that I was a low-carb zealot um, for a while, um, I think some people find something that works for them uh, and think that it's going to work for everybody. And I think, you know, there are people who can eat whatever they want and they wake up, you know, 
I have a, a you know a, a pint of Ben and Jerry's and and that thing is is sticking to me like you know I I, I feel like it's the uh, the sponge theory where it's like you spend like a week wringing out the sponge until it's as dry as as, as you can make it and then you soak it once with water and you're back to square one right um, but um, so we real all we all have really wildly different metabolisms and so it's it's hard to generalize and I think that's why. Um, the kind of whole f- unprocessed foods approach is probably just the best one to s- starting point. Um, and again, if you are able to count, right. So you, this, I think a lot of this goes into, um, again, the emotional, um, side of things. right. So if you are the type of person where it doesn't cause you stress to track your calories, to track your protein, carbs, and fat, we're putting, using a food scale to measure things out. Can you fit a Cinnabon in? Sure. But I will say that from experience, um, if you're on a low, if like for me, if I'm on a low calorie diet, and again, because I have a medapt- an adaptable metabolism and I can only eat 16 or 1800 calories in the day and I blow 800 of those on a, on a Cinnabon or, you know, or junk food, I literally don't have enough nutrients, right? It's an, even if you're eating hundred percent whole unprocessed foods, you're getting less vitamins, right? And our food supply has fewer you know, nutrients per unit calorie as it is, even with vegetables. Um, and now you're trying to fool yourself into thinking that, um, you know, you can get away with this just because you're hitting your calorie target is, uh, I think, just un- very, very unrealistic. Right. Um, that said, we don't want it. You have to find the right balance, right? If if counting calories gives you a sense of control so that you can fit in 200 calories of, uh, you know, half a Snickers bar or whatever it is, and that satisfies you, then great. But if you're the type of person that is coming from a, a bad food environment, that um, it reintroducing junk food triggers cravings. Um, if you view the sugar as an addiction model, which is not, um, you know, I think it, it's a little overblown, but at the same time, functionally, it can, it can act like that where, um, a small amount of the, of the, uh, of the offending substance re-triggers the addiction. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's also the sugar addiction, um, notion is probably an over, oversimplification, right? And we've talked about this in the book. It's not the sugar itself that that's addictive, it's the combination of sugar with fat, with wheat, with salt that makes a food product hyperpalatable. Yeah, and that's just the effect on the brain. That says nothing about the, um, the hormonal effect, right? So nutrient partitioning, right? So when you eat a given meal, what happens to every one of those calories, right? So if we follow the path of a meal, um, your liver can store 100 grams of carbohydrate, right? So your muscles can store anywhere from 200 to 400, right? So if when you eat carbs, that's the only, if they're not being burned as you use them, that's the only place they can go. They can go to your muscle and they can go to your liver. The liver is a flexible source. So if you haven't eaten in 14 or 15 hours, it's going to be 75% depleted. And so you'll have 50, 75 grams of uh, carbohydrate buffer there. Um, but your mu- the, the sugar that's stored in your muscles can only be used by that muscle. And it's not going to burn it unless you're hitting anaerobic level activity. So again, sprinting and weightlifting, you're going to bottom out those glycogen stores. And now you have a buffer. The more muscle mass you have, it basically becomes a sugar buffer. Hmm. Right. One of the other benefits of having more more skeletal muscle. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's probably I would say it's the main benefit um, is that you basically have created um, a little safe space to store excess um, carbohydrate. Um, so again, if you're 
you know, it's uh, it's it's a complex it's a complex um, complex topic for sure. If you come from a poor food environment, looking at a food product purely as a mass of calories, I think is counterproductive. Yeah, and again, it's there's phys- it's both mental and physiologic. So in, in terms of the physiologic, if you get that, and if you are or have been overweight or you grew up overweight, um, you hyperproduce insulin, right? And so the same amount of carbohydrate has a very different response in you than somebody who's always been metabolically healthy. Yeah. When I wore a continuous glucose monitor, um, which are super fancy, cool tools that make let you measure your blood sugar every five minutes for a week or two at a time. Yeah. Um, and so you can literally see how every single food impacts your blood sugar. If I were to eat a high sugar or high carbohydrate food, especially like um, post-workout, uh, I would eat 100 grams of carbohydrates and my blood sugar would plummet down to 50 Right, and I had always known intuitively that after I work out and I eat, I, I'm like a slug. I can't get anything done. Most some people like they work out in the morning and it gives them mental alertness. And for me, I I just turn into I I become like a drunk person. And what I realized is that my body has over the the years of growing up overweight and overproducing insulin, it basically taste something sweet and just starts pumping out insulin, right? And so my blood sugar will actually drop and that's going to, and so now if we're talking about making food choices, you can't make a, a healthy food choice when your blood sugar is 50, right? right? Like you're, you're, you're almost, you're in a stupor. It's like being in the supermarket when you're hungry. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so just having that knowledge at least can, can set you up to um, at least know that you might not be like the average metabolically healthy person. Um, right. And so, so yeah, the if the IIFYM, uh, if it fits your macros, I think yeah. that's like very, very abused. Um, but I think what has come out of that, um, you know, are a few good concepts. So the concept of metabolic adaptation and then how do you counter metabolic adaptation? So having um, diet breaks, having periods of slowly increasing your calorie intake and your carbohydrate intake while you pursue performance goals rather than always trying to be in a fat loss phase right. you need to approach these kind of um in a stepwise fashion right like there was a really interesting study i think in australia where they did 16 weeks of calorie restriction but they did it either 16 weeks all at once or they did 30 30 weeks with two week breaks in mm-hmm. between and they found that you had better lean mass retention um, and more fat loss when you were taking, when you were spending more time at maintenance so that the body, because the body turns on these adaptive mechanisms, you have to kind of periodically signal to the body that it's okay um, to start increasing the metabolism again. And so you can, we're still, we don't know what the, the ideal ratio is. Is it a week on a week off? Is it three weeks on one week off? Um, And then on that week off, right? So let's say you start at, um, 2,500 calories a day is your baseline metabolism. And now you're eating, uh, now you're eating 1500 calories a day. So that should be a a thousand calorie deficit. Mm -hmm. But, um, but let's say your metabolism is now 1800 calories, right? So if you were to go back, let's say you have been doing that for a month and now you go back up to 2500 calories. Well, guess what? Your metabolism's only 1800 right now. So you those extra 700 calories are going to get stored instantly as fat. Yikes. Right? Because your new normal is lower than it was when it started. Right. So when you're doing these diet breaks, we don't know, do is it, do you go back to what you were eating previously or do you go back to your new theoretical metabolism? So instead of going from 2500 down to 1500, you you do 1500 and then up to 2000 hmm. for a week. Um, other people, and this is 
probably leptin mediated. So uh, in in some capacity, but there's probably other things at play. I mean, some people are experimenting with doing uh, two carbohydrate. If you're doing a low carb diet and a low calorie diet, um, uh, doing two carbohydrate refeeds a day, uh, per week, right. right? To kind of help reset the, it's kind of just like doing this shock um, s- signal to your brain saying that there's plenty of carbs available so yeah. we can keep the metabolism high. Um, but again, I think for most people, most of the time, just consistency is it's, it can get overly complicated if you're trying to do five low carb days and two high carb days and how much more it's, you know, you kind of want to find something that's consistent and works for you. So what's, what's like the takeaway for the listener, if you're doing consistent, low carb, hypocaloric, uh, you know, dieting to drop the pounds, then it probably is going to benefit you on a weekly basis to include, um, two, one to two meals that are higher and maybe meeting your, your maintenance level of calories to prevent that sort of metabolic slowdown. Right. So I think for so, those days, yeah. What would the macronutrient composition be for, for you? Right. So I think there's a, um, a, a, an important distinction and a, a big topic of debate among the, um, the fitness and low carb community is whether low carb works because it results in spontaneous lower calorie intake or whether it works because there's some metabolic advantage, meaning that you, uh, you can eat more, but still kind of be in a, a theoretical deficit or create a deficit essentially. Right. So your metabolism won't slow down as much. Right. right. Um, and so I think that's an important, so if you go on a low carb diet and all of a sudden your hunger only tells you to eat 1400 calories a day because you're making up the rest because you're the, ins- again, Low insulin level is necessary and sufficient to induce mobilization of, of your own fat stores, right? right. You got to get that insulin level low. Right. And so um, when you do that and in the early stages, I mean, your metabolism might not slow down so much. So you might be burning a thousand calories worth of fat to make up that. Let's, you know, let's say you're eating 1500 and your body is just saying, okay, we've got plenty of fat. We're going to jack up the, um, and so your body is still sensing that you're getting 2,500 calories, yeah. but it's just that a thousand of them, a thousand of them are coming from your fat stores. Right. Right. Um, so, so again, it's, it's, it gets, it gets really complicated. I yeah. think, um, you know, if you are doing a higher carbohydrate meal and you want to, I will, I will say if you're, if you have a lot of weight to lose and you start a low carb diet, just do it until you plateau. Yeah. But I think that's where we agree that regardless of what, um, is to be discovered about the benefits of the low carb diet, whether it's a behavioral advantage or whether it's a metabolic advantage, that's why that's the diet our go-to. That's why that's why that diet is our go-to. Yeah, I think loss. I think it's um I think it's kind of uh the, although again when they did this um study that was kind of trying to compare low fat and low carb, um they said they found reasonably similar results. But what they didn't say is that um even the low fat group was um basically no grains, no uh, sugar. Right? Oh, wow. That was the Kevin Hall study, I right? think so. Yeah. Um, and so they were still basically doing just, it was like a high-carb paleo versus <laughs> a lower-carb paleo, well, right? Well, that, and that's another argument that I use against the low-fat diet is that the low-fat diet, you know, if, if you were eating a low-fat Okinawan diet, yeah. you know, great. But the low-fat diet today, I mean, in the modern food environment, consists of like low-fat food-like products, natural yeah. cookies and things like that. 
which and, are not and, health foods. Yeah, and you end up it. You think it's low fat, but it's actually not because there's a lot of added oils. And so, right. um, and interestingly, again, if we're going into the deep nitty gritty, is that it's very very difficult to store glucose as fat. Right. So I used, even in, when I was first learning about this, I was like, any excess carbohydrates are stored as fat, but they're actually not. Um, it just shuts, if your insulin levels go up, it shuts off, um, fat burning essentially. Mm-hmm. And so you can't go back into a fat burning state until all the glucose is gone yeah. and it's either stored in your liver or your muscles or you've burned it off. Right. So actually there's some, and again, we're kind of talking about the leading edge of behavior, meeting kind of, um, behavioral science and, um, you know, there's not a lot of good studies out there to show this, but in theory, if you were to do a carbohydrate refeed, um, you should make it a low fat meal. Right, because there's good evidence. There's some evidence that the area under the curve for insulin, so the total kind of effect of ins- of that insulin spike on your body, is going to be lower for let's say a potato alone versus a potato with butter. Right. Right. And so your body can deal with it e- with that glucose um, uh, spike, spike um, quickly and get you immediately back into that fat burning state, as opposed to it. Ex- eating it with fat and it extends the insulin spike until your next meal. And now you've never gone into that catabolic state, right? So I would recommend if you're trying to experiment with it. And again, if you have kind of um, emotional eating issues or you tend or carbs tend to trigger cravings or anything like that, you know, probably just try to stick with something consistent every day. But if you're kind of one of those data driven people and you're trying to self experiment, um, then yeah, switch out, um, that olive oil and avocado and just add the giant sweet potato and see what happens. I mean, I, it's, especially if you're doing a, a good weightlifting regimen, there's no substitute. Like the, there's no, you cannot use fat as fuel for glycolytic activity. So during sprints, uh, and, right. and weightlifting, right? So, um, you need the carbohydrates. Now that's another reason if you're doing a low carb diet and you're do, trying to lose weight is that you decrease the intensity, uh, and volume of your training because you can replenish glycogen from amino acids, right? Um, but it takes longer, hmm. right? So if you're doing, that's why low carb diets work terribly for CrossFit CrossFit athletes. Right, right, right. Um, and I, you know, I actually was talking to a, an elite level CrossFitter um, because there's so much buzz around the ketone and the keto, uh, ketogenic diet and the anti-inflammatory effects. But if you're doing, but her performance just plummeted Mm. because if you're doing five days a week or six days a week of high intensity anaerobic activity, um, you can't replenish your glycogen stores quickly enough. Right. Right. Is there a, a, a known window of time that it takes the liver to process a given meal? So for example, like how long would you need to space out that low fat, high carb refeed meal from the following meal? Um, which, you know, maybe yeah. is going to be a, a low carb, high fat meal. That is a really great question to achieve, to, um, I guess, reduce the chance of fat potentiating the, uh, the insulin area under the curve. That is a very beautiful, elegant question. And we don't know the answer to that, but what I will say is that, um, our kind of functional way around it is kind of like the time restricted feeding where regardless of what you ate, you're giving your liver 12, 14, 16 hours to kind of clean house. Got it. Right? Yeah. Um, And then um, what we do know in the mounting evidence is that um, when you're dumping fructose into the um, 
you know, too quickly into the small intestine, it causes dysbiosis um, and it just overloads the liver. So there's a big difference uh, between fructose um, or fruit sugar being consumed in a whole fruit versus in a juice or a, you know, um, you know, smoothie or what have you, or in junk food, for example, right? Like it's, it's, uh, I think a quarter of it gets absorbed in the first pass through the duodenum, but because of the fiber and the bacterial fermentation and everything like that, it's um, most of it gets released much more slowly into the liver. So it doesn't mm-hmm. overload it. I think there's, there's some, and again, don't quote me on this, but a, the, the liver can handle about 20 to 25 grams at a time of, of, fructose? of fructose. Yeah, I believe that's a, that's um, a figure, but I don't know that that's a hard and fast number, but um, you know, I think the daily time restricted, I think that's one of the reasons that's, that time restricted feeding works well. I don't know that they're right. So if you're fasting for 18, 20 hours, you're getting kind of that growth hormone. Maybe the autophagy starts and you kind of get that kind of those nice hormonal and cellular cleaning benefits. I think the big benefit of time restricted feeding is that you're just giving your liver a chance to clean house and, um, spend a little glycogen and give yourself a little bit of a carbohydrate buffer. Right. I'm a big fan of time restricted feeding. Uh, if you guys are listening and you want to do a deeper dive, you can always check out, Episode 13 of The Genius Life with Dr. Sachin Panda at the Salk Institute. The uh, show is called The Power of Time-Restricted Feeding, a.k.a. Intermittent Fasting. On that note, um, just uh, a few last questions for you. What's your ideal breakfast, Dr. Graywall? Breakfast of champions? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> um, my first meal, I'm, I'm a really big... I think... What might be, uh, what I'm trying to create for some of my patients is just like a super easy meal prep guide that can be flexibly low carb or not, right? So maybe like low carb meals and then you can add in sweet potato or rice. That's basically how I eat essentially. Um, But uh, yeah, instant pot. My sous vide machine is like, I keep it on my belt loop. You are are a man of many talents. I've had your sous vide. I mean, sous vide is pretty, it, it makes you look like a much better chef than you are because it's so foolproof, right? Like it just cooks everything to that perfect medium rare tenderness. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm totally in agreement with you in terms of the breakfast thing, unless you're like doing two a day workouts, in which case, you know, I mean, again, everything that we said in the last hour, or what have you, um, really only applies if you're struggling, right? Like if you are metabolically healthy, you wake up lean and your energy levels are through the roof, like don't mess with any of this, right? <laughs> Your body is, is, is a well-tuned machine. You got, you, you won the genetic lottery and, uh, and just cruise on, right? Like, um, but if you're struggling, then we have to kind of start experimenting with these other ways of doing things. Right. So, um, yeah, breakfast, I'll usually have, I mean, I'll do a shakshuka on the weekends. Oh yeah, man. A cast iron. Yeah. <laughs> a little cast iron action. Um, what's your, what's your ideal breakfast? Oh man. I, I'm a big fan of eggs and, uh, you know, maybe some avocado. What did I have today? Today I had some uh, some organic chicken sausage made by Applegate, which mm-hmm. is a good brand, no affiliation. And uh, threw in three eggs, cut that sausage up, um, and then uh, cooked it over a low heat with a little bit a little bit of avocado oil. And then I uh, poured about a tablespoon to a tablespoon and a half of extra virgin olive oil on it. I did a talk recently, and somebody has a, had a Spanish olive oil, olive vineyard, and brought me this, uh, this custom, um, home, homegrown, home crushed, uh, olive oil oh, and drenched man. The, the eggs in it, put some Redmond real salt all up on there. And then, um, what else? Yeah, that's pretty much it. A good quality olive oil is like, it's great. It's amazing. 
that peppery bite. It's good stuff. Yeah. Um, what about you? Have you uh, have you moderated your where where do you fall on the carbs? Because when we first met, you were just I mean you you were like I feel like you were like me after I first discovered it, and I was just like singing to the rafters that um, it's the best thing ever. Do you eat carbs now? I definitely have become a little bit more liberal in my uh, consumption of carbohydrate containing foods in the post workout window. You know, I used to not really eat very many carbs yeah um just in general and now i will allow myself to have some um i'm also i've i've you know done a fair amount of blood work i'm very uh insulin sensitive and so you know i'll go for the sushi after a workout or a sweet potato or or stuff like that i don't really you know um I still like to be in what I call intermittent ketosis. I think, you know, there's benefit to that. And I think, you know what? I think most healthy, lean people who eat a high carb diet are in intermittent ketosis, right? right? By definition, I mean, and again, this is the ket- the ketone talk, right? Where it's like, um, is there a benefit of the ketones themselves? Or is it just a byproduct of burning your own fat as fuel, yeah. right? And so if you're metabolically flexible, your insulin levels are dropping between meals. You're going, I mean, if you're burning fat, you're in a state of ketosis, yeah. right? Yeah. Maybe the pee strips are not showing up, but like by definition, if there's no carbs in your system and all you're eating is carbs, you're burning fat as fuel, right? Well, I think, I think the benefits are twofold. One, in that you're spending, you're obviously spending more time in a low insulin state. So that's beneficial. You know, everything that comes with um, having that sort of catabolic uh, breakdown process occurring, autophagy, all that stuff. But then I think we can look at research um, that shows ketones actually act like a signaling molecule in the brain. They have a number of beneficial effects uh, on the brain specifically. Yeah, that's that stuff's brand new. So yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see. Where, I'm yeah. curious to see whether there's any impact of exogenous ketones on that and whether there's a benefit over and above just fasting or eating yeah. low carb to make your own? I would guess that there would be. That's that's probably an area that I've... Um, and, I, and I think that I was able to incorporate some of this new thinking into Genius Food. So, I, you know, I stand by my feeling on exogenous ketones as written in the book. But I do think um, probably not from a weight loss perspective because they are caloric. Calories, right. Yeah. But I do think that insofar as they have this ability to boost levels of BDNF in the brain, glutathione, you know, antioxidants, things like that, I think maybe they're beneficial. How that plays out over a lifespan, nobody yeah. knows. But yeah. I think, I mean, what I'm, I think, again, if I'm thinking about how to, when I'm putting people on a low-carb diet, like compliance is a big issue, right? And so getting over that hump of the first week or two weeks where your brain is switching over from 100% glucose all of the time to some mix of glucose and ketones, like what is the right way to, to ease that that low-carb flu? Is it like, you know, green green tea extract plus <laughs> keto, exogenous ketones and... Definitely uh, salt. Adding salt, more salt to the diet. Water, about for that. sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, have you, do you play around with the uh, exogenous ketones? I actually, I find them to be tasty. <laughs> and uh, I do. You have the, wor- the weirdest palate I've uh, ever seen in my life. Well, no. Okay, so actually I, I misspoke. I've uh, played around with the medium-chain triglyceride powder powders and I find them to be tasty. The actual, the exogenous ketones themselves, like beta, pure beta hydroxybutyrate, ketone esters, things like that, very um, un, un, unpalatable. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, I just, I take them with the assumption that they're doing something good. The brain will use them when they're available. So insofar as they can, you know, provide a supplemental source of energy, have some of that signaling effect. Um, there's no way to measure this stuff or test yeah. it, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I use them. All right, Dr. Dr. Graywell, I've got one last question for you, but before I get to that, how can listeners connect with you over the interwebs, find more of your content, uh, maybe if they're you know on the eastern seaboard and they want to come see you as a patient. Oh man! Yeah, how can how can people out there? I'm just, and uh, guys, I'm trying to convince Paul to create more content. So um, by you finding him on social oh, media, oh man, this is a following big... him. It's probably going to encourage him. Um, so let's uh, let's all do that. Well, first of all, Max, um, you know. This is our first kind of public appearance together in a yeah. way, right? Um, well, the today there was the today show. Oh, there was the yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, it was an honor to work with you on the book, and so thank you for uh, involving me in it. It was a life changing and incredible opportunity, and uh, your uh, your work ethic is is admirable, and <laughs> you know you have that deep intellectual curiosity, and it kind of uh, it. I had I actually when you we we had first met I was in a bit of a kind of static place in terms of like my creative intellectual development and you uh, helped respark it so thank you um, oh my pleasure my pleasure and um, but yeah so um, I guess on Instagram Paul Graywall MD that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much it otherwise I keep a pretty pretty, pretty low l- profile pretty low profile <laughs> um, but yeah I'd love to to maybe start putting out a little but again there's so much out there it's it's hard to know what cuts through the uh, noise and what's repeating yourself and yeah um, I know you do it like a soldier on a daily basis I, but do you find it difficult as like a young guy like we're the same age do you find it difficult to balance you know, having an Instagram account and being on social media and the, what are the ethical aspects of being a doctor or not even ethical, but like, uh, what's yeah. the word? Like the, um, the professional, like the, pers- the, uh, ethos and persona that you have to keep as yeah. a, as a, a pillar of the community. Yeah. It, it sucks. <laughs> I, I want to, like, I grew up in Jersey. Like I'm an, I was an angry kid. I cuss left and right. Um, <laughs> and I actually feel like I can't be myself a lot of the time, right? Like I have to have this kind of professorial overtone. <laughs> We have to keep it really up, prim and proper, right? And uh, otherwise, uh, you you lose kind of that stately sort of uh, aura, right? Um, and it's it's rather dull, I must say. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it, and I think this this overwhelming positivity is annoying to me, like really annoying, right? It's everything is just so much positive, positive vibes only. And, um, and again, it, it, it goes over the ugly mat. Like the ugliness is where the work gets done, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's where we're, when we're struggling and suffering and having our darkest moments that our, our character and will is tested <laughs> and we can't share that because we're either admitting weakness or um, showing a side of ourselves that is not this heavily curated persona. Um, so it, I don't know. If, if Instagram wants a, a cynical um, skeptic, <laughs> As part of their daily diet of of uh, scrolling, then 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 maybe I have a place. But I I don't know if I can keep, like for me it's like I can't be like oh my god here's like fifty grams of sweet potato and I'm just mix and match it with my you know chicken breast and I'm like just die. <laughs> 
it's oh, it's man. so annoying because I'm like oh my, like just right now before we walked into into the room there uh, somebody brought some boardwalk fudge and it's sitting in our in my office and like I'm like in the middle of a 16 hour fast and I walk by and you know what I feel guilty. And I just go for it. And I have it. And then I'm like, what kind of example am I setting for my patients? I'm a complete hypocrite. Um, you, you know, and I'm like not practicing what I preach. But it's, you know, at least I, you know, it's if that honest, I don't know what other people are doing. Maybe there are people out there who are just total machines. You don't cheat much. You're, not, yeah. We spent six, eight months joined at the hip. I don't think I, you, I, I don't think I saw you have. Well, cheating, cheating to me is different than cheating for most people. Like, I'm, I'm not going to cheat by eating a Cinnabon or a French baguette. I'm going to allow myself to eat in a restaurant that I know is using very unhealthy oils right. or something like that because, you know, my good friends are going to a restaurant and I don't want to be ostracized from the group. And I think that to a certain degree, social connection and, and feeling close to your friends and laughing and having a good time trumps you know, having a meal once in a while that's made in, you know, canola oil or some yeah. oils that we've talked about in Genius Foods. I mean, the sad fact is that when I'm like most on point with my diet, I'm like avoiding social interaction. Yeah. Because I can't control it. Yeah. I was, like I can't control, like the rest, like at a restaurant, like, you know, and then you have a drink or two yeah. drinks and then it's out the window and like that adds up. And, yeah. um, and I think a lot of people actually struggle with that, right? So these these like meal prep mavens, like, what are the social impacts of that? Do you feel like you have community? Like, are you breaking bread with somebody? Or is it this, like, really isolating existence? And I think a lot of people don't don't talk about that. But right. you have to But you have to find this right balance, right, where cooking becomes rewarding, where you're having, you know, 80% of your meals are nourishing, you know, that you can cook four pounds of, uh, you know, chicken breast or whatever you're eating in an instant pot. And then, you know, if you want to have the occasional indulgence, it works. So I think everyone's constantly trying to strike that balance, but I think yeah. we need to be realistic. And I think, you know, the community aspect, having social support system um, and having other people on board doing it with you is, is always super important. And that's a struggle with, with uh, working with patients because it's just me giving them advice and then I can't control the advice maybe like having groups and chat rooms and you know think i think those there's a lot of i think if there's a benefit to the social media i think there's a lot of kind of support groups on on facebook and um and social media where people are sharing meal recipes and um, ideas like on on yours as well and i think that's probably a huge positive thing yeah. and it's a way of feeling less alone when you have no choice but to be alone right yeah um one of my favorite things to do is to cook for my friends and to like have people over and uh, you know, I mean, right now my apartment in Manhattan is pretty small. It's not really conducive to doing that. But one of my, I guess, dreams you could say is to um, have a, a house that's conducive to having people over so that I can like cook for friends. You've kind of got a place like that. Yeah, I don't put it to very good use because it's yeah. usually so messy. I've got like a barbell hanging over my bed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was talk about social isolation. I mean, I was just like, I would, I live a block from my office. I would come here, I'd go home, I'd lift by myself in my apartment. Man. Yeah, but um, not not super healthy. Always trying to get you to come to the sauna with me. What's what? What does it mean to to lead a genius life, Max? Well, that's the last question <laughs> that I was gonna. Oh no, that I was gonna that ask was my, you. That was my question. That's the question for you. That's the last question that I asked that I asked to every guest. It's a convention that I think actually works, and I, you know, I've been getting some really good answers from people. So. I'm going to pose it to you. Um, I think endless curiosity 
just always kind of push push your ba- challenge yourself assume you can do more than um than you believe you can i'm always more and this goes for myself it goes for my patients i they always do better when i expect more of them you know like when you believe in somebody believe in yourself think you know i mean there's people who i work with who they just don't know that they can have the energy and body that they wanted because they're just conditioned to think that this is the new normal. And it's like, no, your body and your mind are capable of incredible feats, right? You are the byproduct of 3 billion years of evolution. Your ancestors never failed to procreate every single, right, right up till now. They were highly successful, <laughs> right? You are in a lineage of, uh, of incredible survivors and you, you owe it to yourself to do more than just survive through this toxic environment like you need to thrive you need to to help others around you you need to your brain is capable of so much and i think uh society kind of um shoehorns you into like doing one thing finding it tries to find out what you're moderately good at and then it tells you to do that 40 hours a week for 40 years and and the human brain is just capable of so much and you owe it to yourself to explore all those nooks and crannies of your brain i try to do it to varying degrees of success but um i think i think that's that's how i try to lead a genius life it's so so true just think for a second like try to visualize your family tree and like who you have come from, like who had to procreate, the number of people that had to get together in order for you to be here today in 2018 listening to this freaking podcast, like all of the forces that had to come together in perfect symphony to allow this moment to occur. It's pretty breathtaking. Yeah, the odds are quite small. Quite small. Yeah. What a beautiful so, thing. So you owe it, you owe it to your ancestors to... Uh, to live your best life yeah we next next up we got to do the dating episode i think we'll do the dating episode yeah. well yeah my goal for this podcast i want to have uh recurring guests so you've got a you are always welcome to come back on you are one of my best friends thank you so much for uh for coming on what, what's 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 next for max oh man best-selling author podcast extraordinaire oh man just uh trying to make a difference you know that's uh, i that's... think you i think you already have man Thanks, i man. i mean god if i'm ever having a bad day just just read just read some of the reviews from the books i mean you've changed people's lives it's it's amazing Thanks, so congrats man. i mean we're we're lucky to have you as a uh as a explorer as a uh intellectual explorer of um things that the medical industry has abdicated its responsibility for oh man right like yeah we, you know, and here's, I mean, we're going off on so many tangents here, but like, the, I think I'm calling out the medical industry, you know, the medical community right now. It's that, have you seen the movie Arrival? Yes. Right. So the whole central conceit of that is that language changes the way you think. Right. Mm. And so, or if you speak a second language, there are certain kind of phrases and idioms that are not expressible and they change the way you think about certain concepts. Right. In medicine, we've got that, except it went completely wrong. Right. The language of medicine was co-opted by the pharmaceutical industry. And we went from kind of searching out the cause of problems to this is the symptom, this is the name of the disease that we call it, and this is the drug that treats it. And everything else was out of our, our out of our realm. The Harrison's principles of internal medicine, we spent the entire, you know, 
half of medical school memorizing this book had $11 million in industry funding. They just released this information a couple months ago. And so our, the way our brains work as doctors has been almost irrevocably polluted by, by industry. And we need to take back, if there's any doctors listening, we need to take back the reins and take ownership over, uh, nutrition, um, and lifestyle and chronic disease. Chronic disease is America's biggest export at this point, And we caught, and we, we are implicated in causing it. And I think, uh, we need to spend the time and, um, and, and get people like you, Max involved in, uh, setting the, setting the record straight. Yeah. I want an honorary MD. That's what I want. <laughs> there's there's where we finally disagree. You want to put it in, you want to put in the work, Max? Oh man. Boy, you will you you will crumble <laughs> like a house of cards. I I want to put you through one day of of memorizing slides. Oh, oh gosh. I could do it. I bet I could do it. Although that's that is where I picked up the skill of listening to podcasts at podcasts at 2x speed so i can go through the entire compendium of genius life in half the time because oh, we would we would listen to cram 20 lectures into a 10-hour listening session that's a valuable skill it certainly is especially for making through some of these like long-form shows now um all right this was awesome this was probably my longest show to date oh man yeah so thank you dr dr p um maxel.ug for all you guys out there listening in podcast land connect with paul on instagram um again it's at paul graywall md don't forget to pick up our new york our our new york times best-selling book genius foods you can literally hear the banter between me and paul within the text of the book it's pretty amazing um and the book is actually filled with doctor's notes if you've actually already read the book you'll notice doctor's notes uh those were all written by paul well not all but most you you wrote a few of my doctors. Notes. <laughs> let's um, be let's be honest. And uh, and yeah, so uh, check that out. And um, yeah, thank you guys as always. Love you very much. Thanks for listening and giving your attention to me and Dr. Paul for this episode of the show. And we will see you on the next episode of the Genius Life. Peace. Peace.